Every public institution needs an outside, independent look from time to time to make sure they're meeting their mission with integrity. But if you're already the biggest and most trusted government auditing organization in the country, who audits you? Teams from other countries, it turns out. The Government Accountability Office just underwent a peer review by a team made up of auditors from Sweden, Norway, Canada, and New Zealand. They passed, which is actually the highest score you can get. Ben Nelson is GAO's Managing Director for Quality and Continuous Improvement, and he joins us now to talk about what GAO learned from the latest round of outside scrutiny. Ben, thanks for doing this. I'd, I'd like to start, if we could, by just talking a bit about how these international peer reviews work. Um, what, what's sort of the purpose and, and, and you know, how, how do you step through them once they're started? Uh, Jared, great question to, to, to start with. So, uh, first of all, the purpose of a peer review is to have an independent assessment of an audit organization's system of quality control. So that's the primary objective. And the peer review has to answer two questions. Is the organization's system of quality assurance suitably designed to assure compliance with all relevant standards? And secondly, is there material compliance with those requirements? Uh, To do so, the peer review team uh, conducts uh, multiple assessments. They interview staff, leadership, management, they review uh, documents, and they perform compliance tests to, uh, of a sample of GAO's work. And let's talk about the standards a bit. I, I think I've always had in my head that generally accepted government accounting standards are, are U.S. standards, but it sounds like these are actually international standards that a lot of supreme audit organizations, as they're called, I think, uh, also follow. Yes. In the case of uh, GAO, the peer review is conducted in accordance with uh, U.S. government auditing standards. And that's part of the agreement that is reached that we will be assessed on um, GAGAS or U.S. government auditing standards. Now, um, many countries uh, have the equivalent of GAO, and they have the skills and competence to review GAO. They are familiar with uh, government. They're familiar with the challenges associated with auditing and government, as well as the context in which uh, GAO operates. So we find that these um, foreign counterparts to be uh, well-suited to conduct the independent assessment of, of GAO. And I want to emphasize that independence is absolutely critical uh, in peer review. And um, under the standards, we are looking for, uh, to put together a team uh, that can conduct this independent assessment and a team that isn't a part of any organization under GAO's purview. Got it. So if the roles were reversed and GAO was involved in a team that was assessing another country's audit or organization, you would do it against their standards. Is that about right? Yeah, the review is done against the um, reviewed country standards. Yes, that is, that's right, Jerry. So to, th- these have been going on for a number of years. To take us through maybe some examples of, of things that GAO has learned through these reviews and, and ways that it's made you better. Well, uh Jared, I want to say first, the primary benefit of peer review is to establish confidence. Confidence in GAO's work. Confidence that Congress and the American people can have confidence in GAO's work, 
confidence in GAO's findings, conclusions, and recommendations, and confidence that GAO uh, operates with independence and integrity, which was identified by the peer review team as contributing to GAO's effectiveness, that we have this culture of uh, independence, integrity, and, and accountability. At the next level, what we've learned from the peer reviews is that there are opportunities uh, to uh, enhance our practice uh, to make it even more effective. Um, one of the lessons that we learned from a prior peer review is that you need to consider producing multiple products, multiple product types from AGAO audit because we need to serve uh, various audiences and meet varying needs, uh, information needs. So as a result, GAO has broadened its product types. We've expanded to uh, move beyond our traditional reports to issue several types of short form products uh, that are timely and that meet a specific need. And how about from this most recent review? What are what are the main takeaways from you and, and the main things that, that GAO thinks it needs to work on improving in future years based on this? Well, let, let me say uh, GAO received a great scorecard from this particular peer review. Uh, we received a grade of pass, which is the highest possible score that you can get. This peer review team also closed out seven prior peer review suggestions. They identified six practices that contribute to GAO's effectiveness. Uh, by the way, they also suggested that these practices should be considered by other national audit organizations. And uh, Jared, you're correct. They did make three suggestions. One of those suggestions was for GAO to uh, enhance the amount of information provided to congressional requesters um, regarding uh, timeframes for starting the work. This is a suggestion that we have already started to uh, take action on. There were other suggestions that we will consider as we move forward. I want to finish up by just looping back around to the, the multiple information delivery pathways that, that you talked about before. What, what has that started to look like? I mean, everybody thinks about GAO as providing information to the public and to the Congress and in traditional written reports. What are some of the other ways that you've expanded that delivery? Yes, of course, uh, Jared. Uh, the uh, standard format reports are still our primary vehicle for communicating the results of our work. But what we found is that for some topics, topics that where in which uh, GAO has um, done quite a bit of work, or emerging issues such as uh, artificial intelligence or work related to the pandemic, that. Uh, short form products that we refer to as uh, snapshots can help the Congress in terms of understanding the, the dimensions of a particular issue or an emerging issue. And we can issue those in a very timely fashion because GAO has this um, body, uh, has conducted a body of work. Uh, we have uh, we, we've created institutional knowledge that we can quickly share to help Congress address some of these uh, emerging issues or challenging issues. Ben Nelson is GAO's Managing Director for Quality and Continuous Improvement. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.